And will you read with me? Exodus chapter 13, verses 11 through 16. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when it is time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord of all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your, on your hand or frontlets behind, between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Thank you, Pat. Have your Bible open to Exodus 13. Exodus 13, we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 16. I don't want to ruin the book, um, but I've decided I'm going to tell you how it ends. They don't get in. If you want to find out how they get into the promised land, I'm talking, of course, of Exodus, about Exodus, you're going to have to read Joshua. Uh, Exodus ends uh, with a cliffhanger. Sort of wonder, well, what's going to happen? Uh, so they don't, they don't really get in. It's a, kind of a bummer because maybe you've been coming every Sunday and can't wait to find out how it ends, or you're going to be really, really disappointed. Um, no, I'm serious, you will be. Um, so why in the world are we talking about a book where we know how it ends? It's not even that great of an ending. Well, here, so I'm going to tell you kind of my view as we work our way through the book of Exodus. I don't know if I have done this um, before, so I thought I would. There's a lot of different ways to look at the book of Exodus. What we're emphasizing as we think about it is people saved out of slavery into a life no longer enslaved, yay, but in the wilderness. What? And you say, well, the Christian life, we're no longer in slavery. Yay, right? But wait, it sure feels like the wilderness. So that's why I love the book of Exodus. Because it doesn't paint the Christian life. It doesn't paint the life of God as this, hey, I can't, uh, heaven's going to be a letdown because my life is so great here. It's saying, no, I'm saved out of slavery. But there's still some real tension with the difficulty that real life is, in fact, oftentimes, I don't know, real life. And so we look at and see in Exodus what it looks like to be saved and redeemed out of slavery, free from death, but at the same time living the realities that we're not home yet that the promised land uh, is still uh, to come. So the question you might have as you're wandering around in the desert is probably the same question many of those people of Israel had, which is this, what's the point? What is our purpose walking around in the wilderness? What is uh, the, the point of this? It seems like, God, it would have been simpler to redeem us out of Egypt and then to immediately transfer us to Canaan, the promised land, while at the same time already having taken care of all the problems there. How would we ask this today? We would say this, Lord, how come when I get saved, I don't immediately die and go to heaven? Have you ever thought about it? 
Why does he leave us here for a time between when we're saved and when we go to heaven? And Exodus helps us understand that because we learn more about God and discover more of what he has for us, even in the tension of the wilderness. So today I wanted to look at Exodus 13, 1 through 16, and understand as people in the wilderness, meaning out of slavery but not home yet, what is our purpose? What is our purpose from God? So look at verses 13, uh, 13 verses 1 uh, and 2. Uh, Pat didn't read these. Uh, she read uh, some a little bit later on. So let me read verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Who used the word consecrate in a sentence this week? Anybody? A fancy word would be set apart or reserve. Reserve for a particular use. Uh, consecrate is just a fancy word. It's the right word, so we, uh, but it just means I'm going to set this aside for particular use. You get to a restaurant, you ask for a table, and you walk, why can't I sit there? And there on the table is a sign, and what does it say? Reserved. It's set aside. It's consecrated. Now, if they put consecrated on the sign on the table, you'd say, has the health department been notified? <laughs> you wouldn't know what to do with that, but it's reserved. And so what he's saying Reserve to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb. I love how the Bible talks. What a weird sentence. The first to open. Who has ever said that in their entire life? I'm sorry. I've just, I'm sorry. I have the maturity of a middle schooler. The first to open the womb. It's kind of a funny way to talk. But he's saying the firstborn among people that belong to me, God says. I own them. You're saved from slavery, but now I own the firstborn. Purpose. What is our purpose from God living in the wilderness of this present life? First thing we have to understand, we have purpose from God through belonging. Purpose uh, from God through belonging. I, I read a story about a musician in Nashville, very successful musician. You wouldn't have heard of him, uh, but he was very successful there in Nashville. And he was driving and he wrecked his car. It was a very serious accident. He wasn't injured. However, he couldn't get out of his car and he was in some danger remaining in the vehicle. It was upside down and some other things. And a guy was, a pedestrian was walking and he saw the accident happen. And so he went down and he uh, helped the musician get out of, his, out of his car. And he kind of rescued him, saved his life in many ways. And so they exchanged information and they went on their way. He called the guy up. He said, well, tell me, what were you out walking uh, for? What, what happened that you were out walking? And the pedestrian said, I wasn't out for a walk. I was walking to work. That's how I get to work. My two feet carry me from home to work. I don't know if you've heard of this. And he said, why weren't you driving your car? He said, well, I don't have a car. Well, now you do. The musician, this guy who was out walking because he had no car, the musician felt because the guy had redeemed his life, he felt a sense of gratitude, a sense of even obligation. Why not buy this guy a car that he could wreck? I mean, he, that's not what he would do. But So he buys him a car uh, for saving his life, which seems like a silly thing, but really it makes a lot of sense. Uh, having been saved out of it, he now feels a sense that he owes something. There's a sense of obligation out of gratitude. Certainly the pedestrian wasn't charging him for it, didn't send him an invoice. He just... Out of the goodwill of his own heart, he felt a sense of obligation to this guy who got him out of his car, which I think we all, that makes sense, doesn't it? Well, on the night of the Passover in Egypt, God told the people of Israel, put the blood on your doorpost. The angel of death is going to pass through Egypt, and anyone who has the blood on the doorpost, 
the angel of death will pass over the home, and the firstborn in your home will not die. And then people of Israel obeyed, the people of Egypt uh, did not. Everybody who did not have the blood on their doorpost, the firstborn in their home died that night. But in the people of Israel's homes, the firstborn was alive. And you can imagine what that night would have been for the firstborn. I really hope this works. Because if the angel of death doesn't pass over, you guys are going to be sad I'm dead, but I'm going to be dead. And so the firstborn, as the angel passes over, you could imagine their relief as the time of the angel's arrival was gone, and they say, hey, I'm still here. And God is now saying to Moses, all of those firstborn who were spared, they belong to me because they should have died. And now their life, in a real sense, is forfeit because I showed them grace and didn't take their life. They, be, they belong to me. Their purpose now is derived from who owns them. They are no longer owned by Egypt, we could say. They are now owned by me. And I know what you're thinking if you're cynical like I am. Say, well, you went from slavery to slavery. What's the, that doesn't sound like upward movement. Well, that is if God is just like Egypt, but he's not. He is God. So they have purpose from God because they have belonging, which means they have a place to call home, God and his family. But they have purpose from God because they have a new owner. They belong to God. So all of the firstborn that God spared in Israel, God says, I own them. They're mine. So a dad would have a firstborn son, and God says, he's not your son anymore. I take possession of all those that I spared uh, from the curse of the angel uh, that night. A couple of New Testament references to uh, the firstborn and belonging that I just want to refer to. I'm going to go very quickly, uh, so you may not be able to get to all of these as fast as, uh, as I, I read them. You can jot down the references and check me on it uh, if you'd like. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 23 the apostle paul says this about those who are in christ those who have put their faith in christ for salvation and forgiveness of sins who are trusting in him for resurrection power because he raised from the dead paul says this about those of us in that situation you were bought with a price what was the price that we were bought with blood of christ that's a that's expensive you were bought with a price do not become bond servants of men. So what he is saying here is in, in, the, in the Corinthian church, some people were coming in and saying, in order to be a Christian, you have to do the following 10 things to stay in God's family. You need to be circumcised. You need to go to synagogue on the Sabbath. You need to stop eating ham. You need to stop eating shrimp. Super Bowl's next week. What are we going to do? I mean, you got to have these things. You can't have the little smokies. I mean, of course you can't. Okay. So you got to do all these things. And, and Paul says, I'm sorry, the religious elite can't come in and put on you a bunch of rules on what it means to live because you don't belong to them anymore. Jesus has bought you with a price. We worship God and obey him and what he calls us to do merely because he was kind enough to save our lives. But there isn't a bunch of rules we have to follow. He says, don't serve religious obligation that men would put on you, that people would put on you. We serve God out of worship because he saved our lives. So somebody comes up to you and says, 
Good Christians don't. Root for the Patriots. Good Christians don't. Go to movies like that. Good Christians don't. Listen to that band. Good Christian don't. Drink that. Good Christians don't. Play that game. Good Christians don't. Hang out with those kinds of people. These are things we hear. And we respond, as a friend of mine said, I'm sorry, but you must have misunderstood. I'm a Christian from Missouri, so you're going to have to show me where God says that. Because I'm owned by God, not by you. Take a hike. I'm going to count on my righteousness from a cross, not from impressing Mr. Religion. And that's what Paul is saying. We no longer belong to a religion that says, be a goody two-shoes to impress God and people. We belong to a family where God says, you're awesome, and I'm going to show you how to live. We're bought with a price. We worship God. We do not serve others. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and um, some of the other apostles were taken before the religious leaders, and they told them this, We strictly charge you not to teach in the name of Jesus, and yet you keep doing it. We strictly charge you. And Peter and the other apostles answered, um, We must obey God, not men. So we have been, our purpose is derived from what has God called us to do, not whether or not other people have called us to do something. We have to learn by having a good understanding of the Scripture and the good understanding of Christ calling on our lives as an individual so we can say very clearly, okay, I'm being asked here to obey God, or I'm asked, being asked to obey a, another person and not God. That's not going to happen. I'm, I belong to Christ. And my allegiance and my obedience will go through Him and Him alone. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says this. We'll get back to Exodus here in about half an hour. Um, he says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Okay, we're going to get into this in Exodus later, but they build a tabernacle, and God descends onto the tabernacle, and his presence is in the tabernacle, smoke, fire, lots of uh, stuff, lots of power. Where is God today? In the believer, if you have put your faith in Christ, the power and the Holy, of the Holy Spirit himself resides in you. There is as much God in the believer as there was in the tabernacle in Exodus. And he is saying, God has purchased you. God now owns you. And now God, the Holy Spirit, indwells within you. So therefore, you are not your own. This is verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6. For you were brought with, bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. All Paul is saying here, on the one hand, because we are owned by God, we don't have to obey people. God calls the shots. The, the Spirit of Christ in us calls the shots in our life, and nobody gets to tell us what to do unless they're telling us to do what Christ would tell us to do. On the other hand, the other boss we like to obey is ourselves. And the, the passions of our flesh says, that looks like fun. That looks like it would be entertaining. That looks like it would make this pain go away for a minute. That looks like it would make me forget my problems for a half an hour. That looks like something everybody else is doing, so therefore it must be okay. And Jesus simply says to us, I just want you to take a minute and remember, I'm in you. 
when you go do that, I'm still in you. And that's going to be weird. Some of us are convinced when we go and enter into sin, whatever your uh, pet sin is, that Jesus punches out and goes and takes a break. He says, no, since our bodies are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, he says, I want you to consciously think, how do I then use the temple of the Holy Spirit, my body, as a means to glorify the Holy Spirit? By saying no to the passions of my flesh and yes to the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a battle for us, isn't it? There's lots of things that we do that we ought not to do. And, and the Bible calls this instead of pursuing the passions of our flesh, the pleasures that we would desire, he says, I want you rather to recognize the Holy Spirit is in you, and that is where you will get your purpose. A couple of other verses that reference this as well. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. The Apostle Paul says this, I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, you won't desire the gratifiers of the, gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18 of the same chapter, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Walking by the Spirit is not the same thing as following the law. The law says, here are the 10 rules you must follow to make God happy. Walking by the Spirit says, God's already happy. I want to do what he's into. And I don't need the 10 rules. I just want to get to know him. So I'm into whatever he's into. Walking by the Spirit is an acknowledgement that by default, the desires of who I am without Christ is different than what uh, Christ wants. Uh, one more chapter, verse on this. And by verse, I mean chapter. Romans 8, 3 through 11. I told you there's going to be a whole bunch of cross-references today. You may have to jot them down and spend a couple hours after lunch today going through them. Wouldn't be the worst way to spend an afternoon. There's no football on. Verse 3 of Romans 8, For God has done what the law couldn't do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Let me summarize. God says, I have things you must do and must not do in order to have righteousness. You are lame at doing them. You are really good at doing all the things you're not supposed to do. You are really bad at doing all the things you're supposed to do. And so you are unable to achieve righteousness on your own. Anybody here been able to achieve righteousness on your own? Just giving it a shot. Not any brave souls. Not me. So he says the law couldn't teach us righteousness. All it could do is teach us we're not righteous. So he says, you know what? I'm going to do what you couldn't do and what the law couldn't do. I'll send Jesus and I'll just take care of sin in his body. He came as a man but didn't sin, and so therefore all of the obligations of law were fulfilled in him. And so you can read the Old Testament. It says you can find mildew on your wall. Just read this this morning. Find mildew on your wall. You have to call the priest. He checks it out, closes your house for seven days after you've taken all the furniture out. Seven days later, if it's grown, you, uh, if it's gotten bigger, you scrape all the plaster off the entire inside of the house, go out for another seven days. If it's still growing, you tear the house down and rebuild some of you are thinking you would need mildew insurance. 
There's no way. This is crazy. And then Jesus, what he does is he dies on the cross. He fulfills all of the law in us. So this morning when you went to take a bath and you saw mildew in your shower, you didn't have to tear your house down. Or this morning when you had a greedy thought in your mind, you didn't say, oh, great. Now later I have to drag a lamb down to the tabernacle and have Aaron kill it. He's going to burn the skin and the liver and the kidneys. I'm going to have to take the leg out and eat it. He's going to keep the breast for himself. Something is going to get burned outside the camp, I know. And see, I mean, what a pain, right? And we say, Jesus, thank you for paying for that thought. I mean, this is fantastic. He says, so Jesus fulfills the law in us. And so therefore, we walk. That means we live our life not according to our flesh, but rather we walk according to the spirit. Verse 5 of Romans 8. Those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of their flesh or their desires. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of of the spirit. You are not of the flesh in Christ. The Bible says you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have purpose from God. Our purpose, since we belong to God, is to do what? Walk according to the spirit. Wake up in the morning and say, how do I walk according to the spirit? What's your first question? Anybody have a clue what the spirit wants you to do today? Well, see, now it's a little... Tr- what do you mean what the Spirit wants me to do? Is that when I get a quiver in my liver and I think, okay, I'm going to go here for lunch and here? What's the first step to understanding what the Spirit wants you to do? Well, you might want to learn about him. And it, he came out with this book. It's a bestseller. Start here. Sometimes you get fr- so frustrated with God, we have no idea what he wants us to do. And we, we still haven't been able, by his grace, to consume his word. That's the... The greatest place we're going to learn about him. Second thing, have you talked to him today? So, well, prayer is boring. You're going to think differently in heaven when that's all it is because he's there with you. It will be more like a conversation. Prayer is boring. Well, you're never going to understand what spirit's leading is if you don't just sit down. uh, Step number one, ask him, what in the world would you have me do today, spirit? He said, well, I've never heard him answer. Well, I'll throw this up for your consideration. Have you ever asked him? Give him a shot. See what he does. You might have some pretty cool things happen. Be in his word. Be in prayer. Third thing. There are a bunch of things we know the Spirit's not into. Not into envy. You say, well, that's a toughie. How do you not envy? See, we like other sins where we can just behave well. Envy is a tough one. Why is envy so tough? I can envy all day long and you don't know it. Do that all up in here. Right? He's not into gossip. Got a little quiet. He's not into anxiousness. So, well, I wouldn't worry so much if there were, I didn't have so many problems. You say, well, that's kind of personal. I'm just I'm anxious because my life is hard. I agree with you, your life is hard. But I don't agree with you that we have to be anxious. Now, trust me, I'm only anxious when I'm awake. But I know that's not how the Spirit wants me to walk, does he? He wants me to walk in Sabbath, in rest. Purpose from God is through belonging. That means we are possessed and owned by God to walk by the Spirit. Here's the pattern. We are saved from slavery to sin. Therefore, we belong. Therefore, we worship God. It's not the reverse, which is worship God 
in order to belong so that we might be saved. He has redeemed us out of slavery, so therefore we belong to him and that cannot change, and therefore we can worship him by walking according to the Spirit. Our purpose is derived from who we belong to. As long as we're convinced our life is ours to own and direct, our purpose will be connected with what we believe ought to be. The sooner we come to the realization we are owned by God when redeemed by Christ, we can say my purpose is in him and what the Spirit would call me to because the angel of death has passed over us. The blood wasn't on our door, but it was on the cross, and therefore we don't have to be condemned by the, by the curse. Purpose from God. Number one, we belong to him. Our purpose comes through uh, belonging. Next thing, look at verse 3 of Exodus chapter uh, 13. I'm going to read it, um, uh, verses 3 through 10. Uh, this is what it says. Moses said this to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. By a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. Therefore, no leavened bread shall be eaten. Leaven is yeast. Uh, today, in the month of Abib, uh, you're, and that's like March, April, somewhere in there, and uh, you're going to go out of the land of Egypt, and the Lord, he's going to bring you out of the land of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, uh, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey. You shall keep this service, that is Passover, in this month. What's the service? Verse 6, seven days you will eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there will be a feast. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all the territory. You will tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand, as is a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Purpose from God, first of all, we said through belonging. Purpose of God, secondly, is through remembrance. Have this feast once a year to remember what I have done for you. I have saved you from slavery purpose from God in the wilderness by remembering what we have been saved from. A guy named John Newton, he's pretty famous, you may not know his name, but uh, he wrote um, Amazing Grace. And before he got saved and, and got into pastoral ministry, his work was involved uh, on the slave trade in uh, the United Kingdom, um, working on different uh, slave vessels and a storm hit one night and he pledged his life to the Lord and he left that life and he... Um, was saved and was a pastor for his entire life, wrote quite a few hymns. But have you heard of Amazing Grace? Is this a song you're familiar with? I don't know. Uh, anyway, he was getting very old, uh, as people do from time to time. And somebody said to him, uh, Pastor Newton, are you going to retire? You look like you're getting to that age where you may hang it up, which is rude and offensive in many ways. Um, maybe a nice way of saying, are you going to retire, please? Are you? But I don't know. And he said, listen, I was a slaver and a blasphemer. As long as there is air in my lungs, I will be doing the work of God. Now, notice this. He's an old man. Probably many of us have that, have that kind of shame and regret in the history of our life. We would look back on there and say, I can't wait till 20 years go by and I can forget that horrible life. 
Maybe time and distance will make that life fade into a distant memory, and I can just focus on now. And John Newton wouldn't have any of that. He wanted the freshness of what he was saved from to stay in his mind each and every day because in the wilderness of what God called him to, he wanted to know what it was about. He says, I am doing this because I was saved from that, and I never want to forget. It doesn't fill his life with remorse and regret and shame. He just rightly understands today based on what he was saved out of years and years ago. And what Moses is telling the people of Israel is 20 years from now in the middle of the desert, you're going to go, what in the world are we doing out here? Well, once a year, you're going to have a a feast that's going to remind you what in the world you're doing out here. We cannot forget what we have been saved from. They have left the slavery of Egypt. And they had to leave in haste. That's why they had unleavened bread. They couldn't bake it and wait for it to rise and then punch it down and knead it, twist it into fancy knots. They just had to make the bread, stick some oil and some flour, mix it up, throw it into a pocket, and then walk out into the wilderness. They're going to cook it over an open fire. And I want you to remind yourselves how quickly you wanted to leave that life of slavery so when you're out in the wilderness and you're tempted to go back to it, you remember how badly you wanted to leave it. So our purpose comes by remembering what he has saved us from. He has saved us from slavery to sin. He has saved us from slavery to death. Has anybody been able to beat death yet? Just Jesus. If you can't beat something, you're a slave to it. And what he is saying is, I have saved you from death. So therefore, I want you to remember it so that you can live in your new life in joy and a peace. Jesus also touched on this at the Passover he had with his disciples in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. When the hour came, he was reclining at the table. This is the night he was going to be betrayed. The next day he was going to be crucified. Uh, He said to his disciples, one of the, I think, most interesting verses in the Bible, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Here's my question for you. When did he start earnestly desiring to eat that with them? When was that moment? At Passover. Like the first one. Remember, Jesus didn't start when he was born. He was here and he created the universe by the word of his mouth, the Bible tells us. So at Passover, when they're eating unleavened bread with their robe tucked in their belt and their lamb roasting over the open fire, Jesus, the Son of God... The second person of the Trinity always exists, always will exist, is going, this is crazy. In like 1,500 years, I'm going to be eating this meal with Peter. It's going to be awesome. They have no idea that this all is so I can have a meal with 12 guys. And one of them doesn't, is, is a, a liar and a thief. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Why? Because Passover is intended to point to the final and complete Passover. That is Christ's blood, not a lamb's blood. Verse 16, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. When did Jesus last eat Passover? With his disciples. When will he eat of the unleavened bread and drink of the cup again? With you and me. He said, this is just for you and me. And since we're separated still, that's not happening I will drink of it again and I will eat of it again where we are reunited in the promised land, in the land to come. Take this cup, divide it among yourselves. I tell you that 
I won't drink of this cup again until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread and he said, this bread is my body. This bread I give to you, I want you to remember my body was broken. I want you to reflect and remember that my body is about to get tore up. I'm going to get flogged. I'm going to get beaten. I'm going to have a crown of thorns jammed on my head. I'm going to be paraded out naked as the day I was born. I'm going to be speared. I am going to be nailed to a cross. And all of that brokenness... Go ahead, Peter. Could you tear that bread in half for me? Is because you did it. And I want you to remember that, not so that you spiral out into some guilt-laden, shame-based depression. I want you to remember that because that's how much my love is for you. And I want you to remember that because your purpose is derived not by how good a week you have this week. Our purpose is derived by remembering he was broke for me. I have purpose from God by remembering that and even remembering my part in causing it. The suffering that he had for sin was my sin and it was your sin, but it was also a promise of forgiveness and grace. Why do we remember? We remember that so we can once again refresh in our hearts and minds a newness of love for Christ that he would die for us. There's another reason we need to remember. As Paul calls in Galatians chapter 5, the yeast, the yeast of sin still lingers in us, doesn't it? Well, some of us anyway. Jesus saved me from sin. I can't wait till I can do it again. And we don't think that way, but we do. And one of our purposes from God is to remember what our sin has done, that it might create in us the slightest of hesitations that when temptation arrives, we say, okay, no, God, I want to walk by your spirit in this. God, I need your strength to overcome this temptation. When we remember the brokenness of Christ's body, we're reminded again that there is no safe sin. There is no sin that sort of doesn't have any consequences. It all kills Christ. It all runs the risk of destroying our own lives. Sin is dangerous. You agree with me on that sin is dangerous? Anybody had it work out for him? Maybe for a little while. Sometimes in the wilderness, and we're going to see this coming up in Exodus 16 and in Exodus 17, when food gets scarce and things get tough, we say, this seems like kind of a pain. Following Christ seems very difficult and maybe more difficult than it ought to be. One of the things we can do in remembering the price that Christ paid is to count the cost for what we're going to walk through. Jesus said it quite clearly. If someone is going to follow me, he's going to take up his cross and follow me. If someone is going to follow me, the first thing they ought to do is weigh in their own hearts the effect of way that this is going to have on their life because walking with Christ between now and glory is, well, it's difficult. And by remembering what Christ has gone through for us, it creates a, the ability by the Spirit for us to overcome uh, difficulty. The purpose from God in the wilderness is through remembering what he has done for us. Here's the things we fight against. We fight against complacency. Fight against sort of laziness in Christ. We fight against sin. 
talked about that this morning. We fight against religious obligation. How does religious obligation, how does legalism work in our hearts? Because most of us say, I don't like legalists. But then what we do is this. I like this sin. It's not bad. I mean, it's not awful. I mean, no one's getting hurt besides everybody. Nobody's getting hurt. But I feel, let's just be honest, I feel kind of bad about it. I mean, no, it's wrong, but it's not that wrong. It's not as bad as him. I don't know if you've ever had this conversation in your mind. I mean, at least I'm not, you know, so it's just a little thing. But, you know, I feel kind of bad about it. So what I'm going to do is volunteer down at the church. What I'll do is kind of put some time in. So what I'm going to do is I can keep my sin over here. And then what I do is volunteer over here. And those two, those two kind of cancel out, don't they? How does that work? Is that, anybody tried that? Nobody's tried that? I feel awkward now. Then neither have I. That feels weird. <laughs> And then Jesus says, that's funny that you think you can pay for sin because when I think about what it was like on the cross, I feel like you're not actually paying that much. Oh, you volunteered some hours at the church? Oh, how cute. I died on a cross. See, religious obligation is the most offensive. You can sin. That's terrible. We all do. We can sin, but God forgive me. But religious obligation is worse. I can sin and I can pay for it. It says, Jesus, I know what you want is important, but I don't care. Secondly, I think I can afford it. It's, it's terrible. Sin is bad. Religious obligation is worse. You can't pay for your sin. Remembrance says, I must remember how bad my sin is that I might walk by the Spirit. I remember, must remember how bad my sin is so I'm not tempted to think I can earn my way out of it. Freedom in Christ is only found when we finally get to the point where we say, I can't earn my way out of it. Jesus, you're just going to have to be that nice that you forgive someone like me. And he says, I'm way nicer than you'll ever expect. Purpose from God. What was the first one? Through belonging. We belong to God and we belong in God. Second purpose we have from God in the wilderness is remember, he saved us from slavery to sin and death. I don't know what your life holds in front of you. For some of us, the hard stuff is still to come. It's not in our rear view mirror. And what he wants us to say is when we hit that spot where we say it couldn't possibly get any worse, we say, but I remember, I am still saved from sin and death. I am no longer a slave to this world. All right. Remember our purpose from God through belonging and remember. It's the last one. Purpose from God through humility. Verses 11, 16 through 16 of Exodus uh, chapter 13. And Pat was kind enough to read it for us already, but we're back to the firstborn. And what the uh, word of God is telling us is that when the Israelites came out of the, the land of Egypt, God says, I own the firstborn. They, they belong to me. And what the people of Israel had to realize was they weren't any better than the Egyptians. Notice God didn't say, I'm going to send the angel of death into the land of Egypt. You guys don't have to worry about it because you're awesome. No, he said, you guys do have to worry about it because you're as bad as the Egyptians are. I'm just going to give you the way out. Put some pain on the door, put some blood on the door, and you will redeem the firstborn who should have died, but now I'm going to own them because you need to understand, you should have died. Nice way of saying it, but this way he's what he's communicating. I should have killed you because you have disobeyed me to such a degree. And we find purpose from God through humility. That is remembering that God is strong and I'd be dead without him. 
Maybe you've heard of Arthur Ashe, tennis player, tennis hall of flame, hall of flame, tennis hall of fame. Uh, his brother, Johnny Ashe, uh, maybe you've heard the story, was, uh, went to Vietnam, and then his tour was up, and he was coming home from Vietnam. And uh, Johnny was under the impression, not sure if it's true or not, but he made a decision based on it, that uh, the United States government at that time would never send two brothers into active duty in Vietnam at the same time. Now, it's not an actual policy, but he was pretty sure that's the way it was. He was concerned because Arthur, of course, was a tennis standout at UCLA at the time. And he knew his brother had significant talent. So what Johnny Ash did when he was coming out to, to muster out, he just re-upped. Then sent me back to Vietnam. So Arthur Ash's brother, Johnny, went back to Vietnam in order, in his mind anyway, to assure that Arthur Ash would not have to go there. And he continued to, to play tennis and, of course, go on to win Grand Slam titles, go to the Hall of Fame. Now, Arthur Ash, when he was told about this, he wasn't told at the time. Johnny told his dad, hey, I'm going to do this. Uh, uh, and Johnny's dad told Arthur, and Arthur says, they wouldn't have sent me over there, Johnny. I was in college. I, anyway, either way, Johnny made the decision. He said, I've got to go because I want to make sure my brother doesn't go. I want to make sure that he has the opportunity to continue what he is doing. And this is what's happening in uh, Exodus. He's saying, you are going to come out of the Egypt. You're going to come out of the land of slavery because the firstborn uh, have, have not been killed. And so therefore, those firstborn are mine. They're a substitute for you. He's saying to the people of Israel, you get to be a people. I get all the firstborn. I get the firstborn lamb. I get the firstborn donkey. I get the firstborn son or daughter. In the case of the firstborn animals, if they were sacrificing kind of animals, you would take the firstborn animal to the temple and sacrifice it. If it was a firstborn not sacrificing kind of animal, like a donkey, they didn't sacrifice donkeys, but donkeys had a lot of value as uh, beasts of burden. So they say, well, I've got a firstborn donkey. You'd say, well, what you have to do is you have to substitute a lamb for your donkey to sacrifice it. If you don't need a donkey which is kind of where I would be. What am I going to do with a donkey? He said, well, you, but you can't keep it. You can't sell it on eBay. You have to break its neck. We were talking about this in our staff meeting. I said, I don't even know how you do that. I think if you thought, well, how do you break a donkey's neck? Or, anyway, that's the problem. It takes me forever to read the Bible. I break a donkey. Do you, I don't even know how you would. Maybe they had a machine that did it. I don't know. So what he's saying is, uh, and then for the sons, of course, God is not into human sacrifice. So listen, you don't sacrifice your sons. I just own them. They're mine. Bring them to the temple, drop them off, I'll put them to work. But he says, on the, on the other hand, you can redeem them out of service to me. You can redeem them into, back into your home so you can have your son at home. And you can pay uh, a tax to the temple. That is five shekels. We'll find out in a minute in the book of Numbers. So you can redeem your son. So you acknowledge that I own your sons who ought to be serving me in worship for the rest of their life. I'll let you keep your son as long as you redeem him out of uh, service. The firstborn belong to me. I saved them from death. They belong to me permanently. But he's saying, I will allow you to keep them. This is what happened. This is, again, I'm going to turn very quickly. Numbers chapter 3, it's given us a lot of detail. This is what the law says. I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of the firstborn. So a little bit later on, what God says was, tell you what I'm going to do. 
instead of keeping all the firstborn, what am I going to do? I'm just going to keep all the Levites. That's what I'll do. I'll keep all the Levites. So they had a census. Count up all the Levites. There's a whole bunch. Count up all the firstborn that are in Israel. There's a whole bunch, but a few more. And he said, okay, uh, you still owe me some people. No, the Levites, there's more of. I got it backwards, sorry. So he says, uh, give me some, uh, some shekels of silver to redeem the firstborn. Therefore, the firstborn belong to you. You can keep your firstborn. But the Levites belong to me. So the Levites now stand in for the firstborn. You owe me the firstborn. So the Levites, the, the priests, will now serve me instead of your firstborn, who ought to have be uh, serving me uh, for all time. And then what you do is every time you have a firstborn who was born, you would acknowledge that you get to keep your kid by going down to the temple and consecrating them to the Lord, saying, okay, here's a sacrifice, here's an offering, here's some shekels of silver, and we're going to circumcise the kid, and we're going to recognize in humility that he doesn't belong to me. My son is not my son. He actually belongs to God, but God has seen fit to allow me to redeem him back uh, into my home. So what God has said is, I have a purpose. My purpose is for you to worship me because I have saved your life. I'm going to set aside for myself those who will do the temple worship and you get to keep your firstborn son. And many of you, I can see it looks on your face. And, what does this have to do with me? What in the world are you talking about? I have never had a Levite stand in for me at the tabernacle. Anybody? Not even once. Because this is all about Jesus. Every word of this is describing for us someone who can do this in a way that it works. Because just in quick reflection, you're reading the Old Testament. How did Israel do it following these guidelines? I'd say terrible, but that's really an understatement. Anybody ever heard of Molech? So God says, listen, I'm not into child sacrifice. It's terrible. That has never entered my mind, the Bible says. God says, Never entered my mind that anyone would ever worship God through child sacrifice. So listen, five shekels, keep your kid. Levites can do the church thing. So then they start worshiping Molech, First and Second Kings, and they start sacrificing their children. I mean, it's awful. They had no clue what was going on. So what we understand is we need something uh, much better. Very quickly here by way of closing in the book of Hebrews. Uh, this is important. How is this connected with us? Hebrews 4.14 says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Who is our high priest? Jesus. Is he better than the Levites or worse? Uh, much better. He's really good at being high priest. So what Jesus is, is our high priest. What else is true of Jesus? Who was born for, before him to Mary and Joseph? Now, so what is Jesus? Firstborn. You say, well, that's not that big a deal. Well, it is if the Bible makes a big deal out of it. And the book of Luke in particular sort of uh, makes a deal out of it. Luke chapter 2, verse 7, she, that is Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son. And you think Luke never read the Old Testament? He's making a point. She gave birth to the firstborn. This is one owned by God. This is one now standing in for those who are owed and owe God. She laid him in a manger. Down in verse 22 of Luke chapter 2, and when the time came for their purification, just in case you didn't think the law was about Jesus, uh, they went up to the temple according to the law of Moses. They brought uh, Jesus to Jerusalem 
to present him to God. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So the firstborn of all firstborn is now born. And he is our priest. Psalm 89. Don't have to turn there. Just There's not time for you to turn there unless you're super awesome fast. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of Israel. Here's who Jesus is. Jesus is our firstborn. Jesus is our priest. Is Jesus a Levite? No, he's from the tribe of Judah. So that makes him our king. And he's one last thing that we need. He's our lamb. He's all of them. He was the lamb on the doorpost. He was the firstborn. He was redeemed out. He is the priest serving the tabernacle. And he is the king on the throne. So what are you left with? You're redeemed. You're washed. You're clean. Worship is done. Now it's just my finding my purpose in the humility of he did all of it. There is nothing left to do with my life other than offer it as worship to the one who was the firstborn, one who was the priest, the one who is the lamb, and the one who finally uh, is our king. He is the firstborn of the raised, according to Romans chapter 8 and Colossians chapter 1. He is the highest ranking. He is our leader. He is our way maker. He says, here's where you go. Follow me. Our purpose from God is found in humility to recognize that God is the strong one for us and I would be dead without him. This is a little bit counter to our culture. Our culture says, I have purpose because I can find that one thing I'm awesome at. And the Bible says we find our purpose when we find the one person who is awesome at all of it. Our purpose is found and derived in the humility that says, I'd be dead without him. And I don't care if your testimony is one of significant brokenness in your life or if your testimony is, I was saved uh, the day after I got born in the nursery at church. That can't really happen, but we'll just go with that, right? It doesn't matter if your sin was out on the street or if your sin was hidden behind closed doors. Without him, we'd all be dead. And our purpose in God is found when we finally have the humility to admit that. God, without you, I'm a dead man. I'm saved in him. I'm alive in him. Our hope is in him. So then how should I live if that's all true? Purpose from God is through belonging, through remembrance, through humility. Okay, three questions and then we'll be done, okay? Where do you get your purpose? Just quickly in your mind answer that question. Where do you get your purpose? I'm not asking for you. You're not getting the answer out loud so your Sunday school answer doesn't fly in your own head. Well, I get it from God. Of course you do. Now the answer for real. Where is that thing? Since this is true, I matter. Since this is true, my life is worth living. Since this is true, I have some hope. Because all of us have those things that since this is true and it's not God, that we miss our purpose. So where do we get our, is it from our accomplishments in the past? Is it our current life that we're living today is fulfilling and important? Is it some kind of hope in the future that if these things line up, I know my life will have meaning? Purpose is only derived from God. Number one, 
purpose is only found when we finally say, I belong to him. My life is not mine, it's his. My life is forfeit other than to live in him. Uh, My purpose is found in understanding I belong to him as a servant, and that's a good place to be. I am owned by the Lord. He has redeemed me into his own family. And now I want to awake in the morning and say, what does he want for me today? What does he want for me in the life he has given me in my home, in my community, in my place of employment? I don't belong merely to this world, to this place. I belong to him. And what does he want for me where he has put me? Second way, I must remember what I did. I have to remember and not minimize the brokenness in my own life and in your own life. When I remember the damage that sin does to me, when you remember the damage that sin has done to your life and is currently doing in your life, in worship we can acknowledge and say, God, I want to say no to that and yes to you. Will you help me walk by the Spirit today? We can find purpose in living our life the way he would have us live. Okay, last thing, and you're not going to like this. I have purpose when I'm humiliated. I'm using the word humiliated on purpose because that's how Jesus is described in Philippians chapter 2. I have purpose when I finally get off of my high horse and admit I don't bring that much to the table. That it's what he did and what he does that brings my life purpose. That any grace he has shown me in this life, any blessing he has shown me in this life is an undeserved, loving, gracious, and powerful expression of who he is, but it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not I deserve it. And I find purpose in acknowledging that Christ alone has poured his blessing out on me, so therefore I can worship him. Romans chapter 12, I can make my life a living sacrifice. I can approach my family and my marriage and my work and my money and my time and my volunteer service and my witness to my friends and neighbors and my personal holiness, not so much as a way to impress God or others, but rather as an act of worship. What does it look like for Jesus to show up in my particular life today? That's a question we should be answering on a routine basis. What does it look like for Jesus to show up in my life at this job, my life in this marriage, my life as apparent to these children. How can my life be an act of worship? Purpose from God, through belonging, through remembrance, through humility.